Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thanks so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you possess, and that's your time. My, my. Speaking of time, where has it gone? It feels like just yesterday we were getting this little podcast off the ground. And here we are, episode 399, with over 400,000 downloads to the podcast. Thank you for tuning in and for encouraging me to keep it going. Hey, if you're new here, I believe you're going to get a ton of value from this episode as thousands of other solar warriors have gotten before you. So thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's entrepreneur, Reagan Farr, is the CEO of a company he helped start 10 years ago. That's Silicon Ranch in a part of the country where most commercial scale solar projects just didn't exist. A little startup in Nashville, Tennessee has turned into one of the largest power producers in the United States. Reagan's journey over the last decade is compelling and can serve as a learning opportunity for others in the clean energy industry. I was fortunate enough to sit down with Reagan and his team in their headquarters in downtown Nashville. And what you're about to hear is the first in a two-part episode from that conversation. You know, I always love when others on an executive team say to me, I've known this person for a decade and I still heard stories I've never heard before. That's when I know we're really getting somewhere. And that's exactly what Matt Beasley, Chief Commercial Officer at Silicon Ranch, said when we wrapped this recording. So buckle in, you're going to enjoy it. I'd love to give a nod as well to Krista Spencer and the Green Apple team for inviting me to do this interview and helping usher this process along. Thank you. I am in your debt. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to Suncast in whatever podcast player you're tuning in on right now, as that's how you can ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always check out the more than 398 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. And while you're there, hit that subscribe button to the newsletter as well. So I can keep you up to speed on the latest happenings, travels, and musings of the Suncast Tribe and yours truly. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Today, we have an amazing opportunity to look inside of one of the companies that many of you have actually expressed to me, and I certainly have noted over the years, is if by no other milestone, of which there are many, uh, has achieved notoriety in the industry for having one of the best names, in my opinion, of, uh, of the solar and, in fact, clean energy uh, revolution. Uh, I get the distinct honor of sitting down with one of the co-founders of Silicon Ranch Corporation to mark the 10th 
anniversary of that organization and its impact on not just the broader clean energy transition, but more specifically, the Southeast, where I call home, where I was born. We're going to look inside what it looks like to build a company that has purpose, that uh, scales effectively, that has a rock star team. And the person through which we get to do that is Regan Farr, one of the co-founders, the former state of Tennessee commissioner of revenue, who with Matt Kisper and former governor Phil Bredesen formed this company 10 years ago this year. Regan, welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. I'm very excited to sit down and speak with you today. The pleasure is mine. Trust me. Uh, I have, you know, apart from all of the wonderful things I know we're going to discuss, it is, for, for those who aren't perhaps watching on video, the first time that I've ventured out of my studio to do a live in-person interview. And in some ways, maybe this is practice for our uh, podcast launch for Solar Power International. And I'm grateful for the invitation by your team and the Green Apple team to have me come in to, to Nashville and sit down with you uh, to overlook some of the things that you and the team here have helped uh, bring to Nashville. But you aren't from Nashville. Are you from the Southeast? I'm from the Southeast. Uh, grew up in Baton Rouge, okay. Louisiana, son of a college professor, mm-hmm. so I uh, taught at LSU. Went from there to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, close mm-hmm. to where you live now, Indeed. and then uh, came out of law school. And, and it really, if, if you grew up in the Southeast and you're young and you want to land in a big city, it's really Atlanta, especially back at, at the time period that I was coming out of law school. It was Atlanta, mm-hmm. Charlotte, or Nashville. And um, I was very fortunate in that I, I chose Nashville as a landing pad mm-hmm. and um, I have just had an opportunity that the city embraces people from outside of, of Nashville. In a fact, lot of if, outsiders in Nashville. If, if, <laughs> if you've lived here as long as I have, you can almost say you're a Nashville native because yeah. no one's really from <laughs> Nashville that you meet. Mm. It's a great community. Uh, my professional career has grown as the city has grown. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's really been a, a pleasure to, to see everything, all the changes that have happened that, that uh, we can benefit from today. Yeah, we're going to talk about the, the underpinnings of economic development as we overlook the Cumberland and the Nissan Stadium that Governor Bredesen helped uh, bring the Titans into and then create here as, a, as one of the many pulses of life here in, the, in downtown Nashville. You hinted at something that I often like to probe, and in particular, when someone is the product of a household where there is a specific academic track. You mentioned your father's a professor. What was dinner like around the far household when you were coming up? Yeah, it was very traditional. So uh, of all my friends, they said, you, you kind of have the beaver cleaver household. <laughs> we always had our family dinners together. Yeah. Um, always had guests who would come. My friends would always come and uh, uh, share. My, I have an older sister who's a year and a half older than me. Her friends would be there. So it was, uh, it was very nice family time. Grew up in a, in a close family and, and have stayed very close. It's a small family, just the one sister. You know, we talked about a whole lot of different things, not always intellectual, but uh, always uh, had good dialogue. And I think uh, curiosity ruled the day at the table. And and that's a good way to be brought up. Yeah. Uh, Do you remember at what point you started thinking about fantasizing what you would be when you grew up? What did that look like? So I actually, I look back and um, I'm kind of amazed that I didn't give more thought to what Mm -hmm. I wanted to do. Um, You know, it was interesting. I um, 
uh, was fortunate. I got all kinds of inbound college recruiting mm-hmm. mailers, but I never thought of anything other than going to LSU, which at the time was open mm-hmm. admission. You just yeah. uh, showed up and and uh, started going there if you could uh, pay tuition. I guess because my dad was a professor, my mom was an elementary school teacher. I kind of assumed I would be in academia myself. Always enjoyed school. Went to LSU paused for a little bit to test the job market and then very, very rapidly uh, got a fellowship and went, went back into grad school and uh, probably would have been a professor, but for a friend of mine's uh, mother who really encouraged me to, uh, to think more broadly. And she's like, you know, you would be an incredible uh, attorney. She's like, have you ever thought of going to law school? Ironically, I never had. And I was right in the middle of a fairly intense uh, postgraduate uh, curriculum and and realized I wasn't as excited about the curriculum. Uh, it's very heavy math, econometric modeling courses, and uh, decided to give law school a shot. And that was a, a very important inflection point in my life. I always think it's really interesting, those those little nudges that over the arc of our career, they seemingly move us small increments, but it's the difference of one to two degrees that can move you from California to New York or South Carolina, right? And sort of looking back at one's career, you can start start to see how the how the points connect. But not every lawyer goes into uh, business, although many do. Not every lawyer goes into politics. Was there anything in particular that uh, called you into uh, what you ultimately established as you know really the foothold of maybe what you were early in your career known for? Uh, economic development and working at a political on the political stage. What called you to that government level? So it, it is a very interesting uh, path. I, I actually moved to Nashville to take a job with a big four accounting firm. Mm-hmm. Was fortunate when I was given the opportunity to join join the firm. They said uh, you can be one of twenty two hires in Atlanta, or we're opening a Nashville practice, and mm-hmm. it will be you. And, uh, and a partner. And I was like, wow. well, I will take that one. And that was mm-hmm. another one of those. I'd never been to Nashville, had uh, driven through Tennessee, never stopped. So it was fortunate. Um, through that experience, was able very early in a career to work with marquee clients mm-hmm. and um, have experience just by being around thought leaders and business leaders to uh, have more exposure than I would have had I joined a larger city office like Atlanta. It was really through uh, my engagement with the Tennessee Department of Revenue at a very high level, the, the director of audit, because most of my clients were very large. Their proposed assessments or tax issues uh, had big dollars attached to them. So I would engage with the director of audit uh, to try to get a lot of that settled. Mm-hmm. She ended up being the individual that offered me the opportunity to join state government. Mm-hmm. When Governor Bredesen was elected for his first term, uh, he offered the commissioner position to the former director of audit. And she called me at the time I was uh, exploring the possibility of, uh, of relocating to South Florida, oh, wow. Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. I was um, traveling every week, and that's kind of hard. Yeah. Uh, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. Trust to, uh, me, I know. I've been, that, I've been in that world. <laughs> so I was really at a point where I either needed to 
go ahead and say, I'm going to relocate to, to Florida mm-hmm. and just be all in. I'm going to be a partner at a big four firm. Mm-hmm. Or I had this opportunity. Lauren asked me, it was Lauren Chumley. She said, uh, do you want to be my deputy? Wow. It was interesting. I had really not thought of, of state government as an as a aspirational goal, but the Department of Revenue has roughly 1,300 employees. It was a great opportunity to come in and really have management experience at a different level. And I was like, I'm going to do this for 18 months, and hmm. then I can write my ticket. Right. So I just thought it, of it as a stepping stone. And when I joined, I think I got a whole new appreciation for what public service means, the opportunities to have a disproportionate impact uh, because you have all of the tools of government at your disposal, and uh, really fell in love with with working for Governor Bredesen and, and some of the opportunities that that, that role in government presented. And uh, that 18 months very quickly turns into eight, eight years as, as those things happen. I think that a lot of folks know that you uh, and your co-founder, Matt Kisber, were co-commissioners under Bredesen. One of the things that I found myself thinking about is if I don't know anything about government and all I'm thinking about is renewable energy development, and I take for granted that there's other people on my team in policy whose job is to help our company navigate the government uh, affairs stuff. Do I actually know what a commissioner does? So I'd love it if you could give me the, maybe the, the high level 101 of how and why commissioners work on behalf of the state government and the, and the governor and your role in particular as chief revenue officer, because I know what a chief revenue officer is for a corporation, but how's that different in government? So in Tennessee, um, the Department of Revenue administers all of the tax laws mm. for the state and uh, administers the Department of Motor Vehicles, so automotive licensing. Not exactly what you think would be a position to really have entree or insight into the renewable energy space, but uh, you're managing an organization that touches literally almost every person in the state mm-hmm. of Tennessee and every business that does business in the state of Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And at the commissioner level, companies that are making large investment decisions, they want to know how those investment decisions are going to be impacted by tax policy. It's interesting, tax is a space, you know, where everyone, clarity is beneficial to both Mm -hmm. tax administrators and taxpayers, but it's very difficult to draft a statute or regulation that addresses all situations. So you're constantly engaging on gray areas. Mm -hmm. It really gives you a chance to sit down at the table when you're practicing tax at that level. I I thought the fact that I had been on the industry side of of the table multiple times Mm -hmm. representing taxpayers, it really helped me in my role as the tax administrator try to problem solve. Yeah. So instead of uh, one thing I was very proud of 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 my time in, in office working with Governor Bredesen, We really pivoted from a state that would take a position, the taxpayer would take their position, and if if we couldn't find overlap or area of agreement, we would just litigate and let the courts Mm -hmm. decide. My approach was always, let's figure out if we can find a a path forward that we both agree on. And if not, I'm the seat of government, so I'm going to draft a clarifying statute. So Mm -hmm. I I got to be very active uh, in drafting tax legislation and clarifying Mm -hmm. policy. And uh, I think that is a purposeful way of problem solving other than saying, well, we don't agree, let's punt it to a judge who may or may not be 
uh, a tax expert or understand the implications of his decision. Uh, but you're, you're an administrator. Uh, the governor has such a broad role. He's got to appoint subject matter experts to run these different divisions. And uh, it's interesting, but as you step in, governor has a four-year term in the state of Tennessee, and you can't serve more than two terms. So when you step in, the average tenure in state government is probably 20-plus years. The supermajority of the workforce is protected by civil service laws. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting in front of an audience who has been there longer than you, probably knows more about what they're doing than you know. And they say, this is the third or fourth guy or gal that mm-hmm. I've seen uh, step in and, and want to make change because everyone comes in <laughs> with a change agenda. You have to convince them to come on the journey with you because if they don't, you can't steer an organization just from the top. Yeah. So it was uh, an incredible, incredible journey to have to sell my vision, uh, not just to the governor and the legislature, mm-hmm. but really sell my vision to the administrative staff of my own department, because that's the only way you can truly affect change in, in, uh, in government. Is the commissioner elected or appointed? Commissioner is appointed. Okay. Uh, my fellow colleague, uh, Matt Kisber, he was also appointed as commissioner of economic and community development, which mm-hmm. is the business recruitment arm of state government. But uh, I always laugh because he was also the youngest elected state legislator in the in the history of Tennessee. Yeah, 23 and years old, right? 23 years old, uh, uh, coming straight out of Vanderbilt, Amazing. decided to, to run for office. When you meet us, you can always say, so this guy ran for office and this guy was appointed. It's very obvious, uh, the, the two different personality types when you meet us. There's an amazing Facebook video that I watched of him. He unseated incumbents across the aisle and in his own party at such a young age. I, I look forward to meeting Matt because he, I've enjoyed learning how you all compliment one another, just sort of exploring how Silicon Ranch came about. The way that you've described the commissionership, is that what it's called? Commissionership? Uh, Yeah. Yes. Okay, perfect. That was a total guess. The way that you've described the commissionership in Tennessee, is it the same in all state government? Not always. Every every state has its own peculiarities, Mm -hmm. but uh, in Tennessee, the governor appoints the commissioner. Mm -hmm. The commissioner probably has, depending on the department size, anywhere from three to a dozen positions that they can appoint. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, your your whole staff is, is permanent state government employees. So you're inheriting. You're inheriting a a, a vast infrastructure. Did you have large team management experience before this? So the the first big four firm I worked with, I I worked under a a partner. And as she said, right as I became valuable to her, I (laughs) left and went to a competing big four firm and uh, helped start up uh, the tax practice for them. So I had grown a a practice, and this is back in the early 2000s, to... uh, $3 $3 million of revenue, which mm. uh, now doesn't sound like much, but back then it was a, a very meaningful right. presence. So I had built a team, but never at the scale of what's, what the Department of Revenue had. Yeah, I appreciate that insight. I often talk here with folks about the difference between entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship, that ability uh, and obvious desire and instinct for you to seek creation within a corporation, uh, going to Nashville versus Atlanta, uh, getting that opportunity to show yourself and like test your mettle. Uh, I really appreciate that for me, early signs of entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurism. Uh, I had a previous guest recently who talked about being entrepreneurial versus being an entrepreneur. You know, another thing that as we move around in our careers, we 
often will do is we are attracted to folks that we want to learn from. Do you recall the first time you met Phil Bredesen? Oh, very much so, yes. It was very early. I had just joined state government Mm -hmm. and uh, had really not followed Tennessee politics all that closely. Mm -hmm. I had followed politics when I was growing up as a child, but when I moved to Tennessee, I was very focused on work and and worked all the time and Mm -hmm. could not have told, I could have told you anything about tax, but nothing about government. So the former governor, the the preceding governor to to Governor Bredesen was a a gentleman named Don Sunquist, and he had tried to enact a a state income tax. Uh, Tennessee does not have an earned income tax. So it was very contentious, and his name was out there a lot. There had been protests. It was interesting, Governor Bredesen's very first cabinet meeting, and if you put yourself in a governor's chair, you're just elected. You have to do a whole lot of things, and you've got to appoint uh, almost 20 different commissioners in various areas of expertise. So you don't always know 20 people who are, this guy has got great experience in ag, and this person's got great experience in something else. So you don't know your cabinet too mm-hmm. well when you, when you first appoint them. A lot of your staff does that vetting for yeah. you. So the, the woman, Lauren Chumley, that he had appointed commissioner was traveling. So she asked me if I could go to the first cabinet meeting. I walk into this large conference room, there's cameras all around, and I say, you know, I don't really know anyone here. I'm going to sit at the back of the table, so I'm just kind of out away from everybody. Well, little did I know, the cameras were all up front, but they were all going to zero in on the governor who sat at the head of the back of the table. So he comes in late, sits down, he's looking at, at the media, he's looking at all of these commissioners, and he's like... Who is that guy? But he, he can't make a big deal out of it. So he goes through his entire cabinet meeting. Then as soon as it ends, he stands up and he comes over to me and introduces himself and mm-hmm. asks me who I am. And I had worked a little, I had worked an introduction mm-hmm. in, into my head. I thought about it the whole time. And, instant, and when he comes up, I forgot everything I was going to say. And I called him Governor Sunquist. Oh, no. And it was interesting, but then the media all kind of came in and, and took him away. So that was my, I, I, my first time to make a good impression. I called him the former governor's name. Oh and I was like, well, it was pretty loud in there. There were reporters trying to get his attention. Surely, maybe he didn't notice. So I ran up right as I was walking out and called him Governor Bredesen many times in quick succession and then left. And I was like, whew, dodged a bullet, probably got away from this. Well, my... my one of my many mentors and dear friends was the governor's uh, uh, personal CPA. And he was actually dropping uh, some tax information off for the governor at his, as his, at his residence and thought he'd do me a favor. And he's like, Governor Bredesen, you've got a really bright young man working for you, uh, Reagan Farr. And the governor's like, no, I, don't, I don't recognize that name. And he's like, yes, he's your deputy commissioner of revenue. And the governor's like, ah, yes called me Governor Sunquist the first time he met me, then tried to cover it up by coming up later and calling me Governor Bradison. So we, we laugh about that now because yeah. we spent two decades together and, and we're very close friends and colleagues. But uh, yeah, that goes to show you can anyone who's thinking about uh, starting out and you hit a speed bump, you can overcome those, uh, those small obstacles if you just uh, own them, okay. <laughs> own them and, and soldier on. I love that. Hey, want to protect 
your margins and get projects over the line fast? Look, we all know solar development teams waste millions of dollars every year on inefficient development. We both know that the old school methods of engaging with stakeholders, collaborating on documents, and even pitching investors is literally starving you of the one thing that you won't get back, time. You need greater velocity in your deals that only comes from tried and true duplicatable processes so your margins aren't constantly under attack. And in an increasingly competitive marketplace where even big oils getting in on the green gold rush, the right software will help keep your team focused and in control of what really matters. Lucky for you, Enian Project Manager is purpose-built software made for developers by developers. Sign up for free now and start moving faster with software made just for you. Go to enian.co and see what Enian Project Manager can do for you. That's E-N-I-A-N dot C-O. You uh, went on to work uh, both terms. Yes. With Governor Bredesen ultimately rising to commissionership. I'd love to hear as we start to navigate this whole conversation around economic development, how the power sector and play, plays into it. As you were developing, uh, eight years is a pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty sizable chunk of a young career. What were some of the early lessons for you working under Governor Bredesen, in particular, given his, I'll say, predilection for and certainly history around entrepreneurship and, and investing and owning businesses? Are there any things that stand out for you that you remar- are noted to yourself? Like, Here's something I've learned from this guy and how he operates. That's a great question. And I would not have stayed had he not been the type of man and governor that, that he was and is. So very early on, even when I was deputy commissioner, I was a task. The governor had been a businessman, and he said one of his frustrations when he was in business was he would always talk to the economic development department, and they would make all of these promises and inducements to get, get his, uh, his business to invest. But then a year or two later, after the investment was made, the jobs were created, the Department of Revenue would follow that and, and say, well, that actually wasn't quite right. You didn't fill out this form. So they would claw back a lot of the benefits that had been promised by the Commissioner of Economic Development. And it created, you know, there's the clawback part, but it was really, it created a bad business environment. So he said, I want all of government to work together collaboratively and get get things right on the front end. If there's a tax policy that doesn't make sense from a business environment perspective, then let's change it. He gave us some operating guidelines, but then just trusted us. And that was a, a very important lesson of, um, we got so much done, myself, Matt Kisberg, as we were real core components of the economic development team. And we were able to get things done because they knew we spoke for the governor. Like when we said, listen, the law says this, but if you make this investment, we think that the law should work this way. We hadn't contemplated an industry like this. And a a data center is a good example. Tennessee, because we don't have an income tax, we have a relatively high sales tax. And we charge sales tax on electricity to businesses. So data centers huge consumers of of electricity. 
we give manufacturers a reduced rate on the electricity they use in their process, but data centers, we, we weren't. So very early on, we targeted data centers as, a, as an investment class that we wanted in the state. We really didn't have a lot of data center investment. And, and the sales tax on data center power came up as, a, as an inhibitor to that investment. So we made the argument, a data center's processing data is kind of the manufacturing of the 21st century, and uh, shared that vision with the legislature and changed the law. So it was, it was the fact that we could tell potential business partners, we will deliver these results, and they could believe and know that we would do that. It was really Governor Bredesen empowering us to act on his behalf and then helping us as we tried to deliver the promises we had made through the state legislature that um, really made the job incredibly interesting. And uh, you felt like you were part of creating positive change. Yeah, it's interesting. Having also grown up in the South, I now live in Durham, which is seeing its own revival. We've all become painfully aware of how popular Austin has become in the South. Uh, I'd say Nashville and Atlanta are two other uh, iconic cities that over the last 25 years have really grown into vital economic contributors that have attracted the Titans, have attracted Amazon recently, along with Durham, said, you know, they're going to set up shop in Nashville. This whole, I'm going to call it game because all business is kind of a game. Uh, The game of economic development is on some level, how do we as a state organization provide opportunity for our constituents, our citizens, for our businesses? How do we attract new opportunity? Much of what we were just discussing. And in large part, you know, what many listeners may not know, we've just learned about Tennessee, is true in a lot of states that one of the big economic engines is the ability to, in some way, reduce operating expenses for companies to that for a period of time or indefinitely to attract them, which creates jobs, it creates stability, it creates growth. Uh, Nashville's been really successful at that. And, 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 and not uh, Governor Bredesen and his tenure alone, but certainly he holds a place in history as having attracted a lot of opportunity to Nashville. Do you remember a specific period in time where the narrative around electricity and how we produce and consume it started to change? Were there any particular moments where perhaps you internally or Governor Bredesen were influenced by outside sort of thought leaders or conversations that suggested that there's this thing called solar or clean energy, and it's potentially going to not only change the way we think about electricity, but offer us economic development opportunity? So one of the most important economic development initiatives that we worked on was uh, growing up in Louisiana, I had seen a lot of what happens when you get the industrial side of an investment, but you don't get all of the benefits of the headquarters. So we have a lot of oil refineries, but all the headquarters are in Texas or in New England. Yeah, you got good jobs if you work to the plant, but you got all of the negative externalities and not a lot of the positives that you might get if the executive lived in that community. So we focused under Governor Bredesen's tenure on recruiting headquarters to the state. And one of the most important headquarters we recruited uh, was Nissan North American's manufacturing headquarters. And during that process, which lasted a, a period of years, got to know Carlos Ghosn. 
And, you know, Nissan was very early in EV adoption. So it was interesting. I will, I will never forget one of the, the more, it was one of those data points in my, in my journey around how to think about renewables and the energy transition. Uh, we had worked with Nissan quite a bit, but say ultimately relocated their headquarters here. We'd also worked with Volkswagen, who we recruited uh, their North American manufacturing facility to Chattanooga. And we were dealing with, so you're dealing with the leadership of Volkswagen, you're dealing with the leadership of Nissan. And Nissan was transitioning very early to EV, uh, electric vehicles. And, and Volkswagen uh, was very much focused on skipping electric vehicles, bringing efficiencies out of the internal combustion engine and going straight to fuel cells. And I was at dinner and, and I had the chance to ask Mr. Gone, I was like, you know, you are betting on electric vehicles. Just talked to the CEO of, of Volkswagen a few weeks ago, and he's saying EV is nothing but a stepping stone to fuel cells. It was very enlightening for me, and I, I think his, his vision proved true. He said fuel cells are a very complicated technology. He's like, uh, electric mobility is going to scale incredibly quickly, and sometimes scaling matters more than having the exact right technology. And that really stuck with me. And I, I think as you know, time has played out now and, and you see Volkswagen saying they're going to stop uh, manufacturing uh, internal combustion engines by 2035, I believe, maybe even 2030. So uh, Carlos Ghosn's vision, I think, played out. And it was, uh, it was very interesting for me to file that away that sometimes deployment at scale, especially in something like transportation, where you've got to build out an infrastructure, uh, matters more than you know, get out there and do it instead of just waiting until you've got every little thing figured out. That, that's a good lesson across multiple areas in, in an entrepreneurial environment. I think I seem to recall that there is a story around potentially how maybe Jeff Immelt and Tom Friedman had an impact on the narrative internally in the governor's office around, uh, or at least inside of you guys' circle of conversations around what the energy infrastructure was going to look like moving forward. Sure. So it's a, it's a great, great example of how planning ideas can really lead to impacts going forward. Governor Bredesen had gone to a National Governors Association conference, and he heard Jeff Amelt, then CEO of GE, and Tom Friedman with the New York Times give a speech or host a panel, and they were saying, energy transition is happening. Mm -hmm. And they're like, this is going to be something big. And you, you can look at it as we need to be in this space, because at this time, oil is $100 a barrel. They're like, you can look at, we need to be in this space for energy security reasons. You can look at it for we need to be in this space for environmental reasons. But we encourage you to look at it as we should be in this space for economic development reasons, because this is going to be a massive period of change and it's going to be very entrepreneurial. And the states that recruit the thought leaders in this space are going to be the states where these businesses are started and ultimately scale. So it was interesting. Governor Bredesen came back from that Governor's Association meeting and called Matt and I in his office and said, I want you to come up with a clean energy strategy for the state of Tennessee. And we looked and said, you know, where we have been tremendously successful is in recruiting headquarters and in recruiting manufacturing. So 
we really said Tennessee's niche is going to be finding uh, or recruiting components of the uh, renewable value chain into the state of Tennessee. And we were very technology agnostic at that point. We went after biofuels, which was very big back then, uh, wind uh, manufacturers, and um, ended up uh, recruiting two polysilicon manufacturers. We had TVA uh, here as a, as a great partner in economic development. Really, that was the part of the solar value chain. But also, uh, I know you know Dean and, and the team at Shoals. Another example of we worked with Shoals very early on on uh, what we could do to help support that very, very young company when it moved here. You know, yeah. Dean started out in auto supply parts and uh, decided the margins were so, so hard there that he was going to start and really started pivoting to supplying uh, components for for renewable manufacturing. And now they're one of the largest employers in, uh, in, in this part of the state. Yeah, amazing. IPO'd and, and Dean is a... Uh, joined a, a short list of billionaires who, uh, who live in the state of Tennessee. You know, I, I think Jeff Amell and Tom Friedman were really, uh, had great foresight and, and the governor had great foresight to act on it that, um, you know, Shoals is here because Dean and his team found a business-friendly environment and we supported them as, as a young industry. And now they're uh, a rapidly growing, well-capitalized industry. That whole construct of don't necessarily, you're going to pick winners and losers. You don't want to do that. You just want to get, you want to create an environment that's conducive to let people succeed and or fail. I think one thing that hurt our industry early on was that the DOE awarded, they kind of tried to pick the winners. And unfortunately, one of the companies they chose to back in a meaningful way was Solyndra. And, And I, if, if I had a dollar for every time someone mentioned Solyndra when we were first starting yeah. and, and, and selling the vision for what Silicon Ranch would be, uh, I would have had a whole lot of dollars walking yeah, around. And, right. uh, and, you know, they didn't understand that that's just one technology play in a very immense value chain. And it wasn't even what we were selling. We were selling the service of providing renewable electrons. You know, Solyndra was trying to manufacture a product. My mind is drawn to the reality that as an economist whose job is to attract opportunity to a state, you are by nature of your job looking for data points that contribute to a narrative that not only you can defend financially, but that the governor can sell broadly as a plan. What data points did you and particularly Matt Kisber as your sort of cohort that he had selected look for that convinced you among the many opportunities you could track to Tennessee, that the solar industry was a viable uh, path forward. Were there you know, any particular conversations or trips that... Yeah, so recruiting the polysilicon manufacturers. Uh, so at the time, Hemlock and Vocker were the number one and number two polysilicon manufacturers globally. Polysilicon's always been used in computer chips. So it was kind of this inflection point when... The majority of the polysilicon manufactured was slowly, it was still going to computer chips, but they were starting to have the more volume go into solar wafers. So it was very early and the price of solar was very high, but we were fortunate to be able to talk to these uh, companies that were making billion dollar plus bets on what was going to happen in the industry. So working with them, getting an understanding of uh, here's this core component of 
silicon-based solar modules, and all this capital is flowing into this, and, and part of that is going to bring the cost down. That was an interesting data point. And then um, we also, we did a lot of, so we, uh, part of our economic development efforts were geared on how could we cooperate and have bilateral trade deals with, with China and with companies doing business in China. So we, we spent a lot of time uh, traveling internationally and, and, and spent some time in China. And on one of those trade trips, uh, Matt Kisper had set up a, a company tour where Applied Materials was putting a huge R&D facility in Xi'an, China. I always joke, Xi'an's where the Terracotta Warriors are. So it's a beautiful city, uh, incredibly polluted, real struggles with, uh, with uh, air pollution there. But the, the R&D facility that we drove to is literally was at the end of the road. You, you drove on brand new blacktop and then it mm-hmm. stopped. There's this huge field and they were just building an R&D campus. Yeah. And uh, we were fortunate they were going to have their uh, ribbon cutting ceremony on a Monday. We got there on a Friday night and they had the head of the company there who had led the build out of this R&D facility. And he thought he was going to do a little 30-minute blue ribbon tour for some politicos. Governor Bredesen is a Harvard-educated physicist uh, by training, very savvy (laughs) business person, and incredibly well-read. If if he is interested in a topic, he will do a voracious amount of research and reading on it uh, on his own accord. So we end up meeting this gentleman who's leading the tour and I think he very quickly realizes we have a ton of questions. This is, but it was a solar manufacturing R&D facility. So they were trying to pioneer how to manufacture solar modules more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And we spent easily three hours in Q&A sessions doing a tour of the entire R&D facility. And as it, as it wrapped up, we were walking outside about to get on the bus. And uh, there was one question I hadn't wanted to ask, because there was a, Chinese nationals there as well as the applied materials people when we were inside. But we were standing out about to get on the bus, and I was like, you know, I'm kind of curious. Why do you put this facility in Xi'an, China? Why not in a place like Tennessee? Mm-hmm. And he, he's like, Reagan, look around. He's like, do you see the air? He's like, because you couldn't even really see 30 feet away from you. Wow. It was, he's like, um, living here is the equivalent of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. He's like, uh, this is an R&D facility. We know that our technology is going to be pirated. He said, we think it's changing so quickly it won't matter because uh, there'll always be a generation behind. But he said, we are here because the Chinese government has said they are going to line up behind deploying renewables in in China. He said, when China does something, they do it at scale. And if you want to play in that, that field, you better be here. So he said, that's why we put this plant here. And he's like, you know, you have a unique opportunity because you're served by TVA. And uh, I always say this shows we've been in the industry a long time. He was like, if you could get TVA to commit to buy 50 megawatts worth of solar a year for three years, we would put a plant like an R&D facility in Tennessee. Yeah. Because that would really create demand. 150 megawatts of demand. 150 megawatts over three years. <laughs> so we build plants that size now. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It was interesting. Filed away that data point and um, came back from that trip uh, and really started giving a lot of thought to 
all right, what tax policy or tax mm -hmm. credit could the state of Tennessee enact that would help encourage uh, the procurement of 50 megawatts of, of solar a day? And we had, in previous discussions, learned the Moore's Law of Solar, which was for every doubling of deployed capacity, costs are going to come down approximately 20%. I started just running spreadsheets and saying, all right, how much of a tax credit do we need? And, and realized with just a few years, you wouldn't need a tax credit. That was my light bulb moment for there is a real opportunity in this space. That was the beginning of starting to draw up a business plan for, for Silicon Ranch. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that's a wrap on part one of my journey with Reagan and You've made it this far, so I got to assume that you're as wrapped up in this discussion as I was. What happened next? How did Matt Kisber, Reagan Farr, and the team go from spreadsheets and PowerPoints to gigawatts of power plants? What were the twists and turns as they navigated product market fit, raised hundreds of millions in funding, and ultimately built an enduring platform 10 years in the making? Hopefully you've queued up part two for the next spare moment that you've got. It's worth it, trust me. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion over on our blog. That's also where we have the social media links, book recommendations, and all the interesting articles that I dug up in prep for this interview. Go to mysuncast.com and click on the show notes. And hey, since you're already going to be hopping online, Reagan and I would love to hear your reaction, takeaways, and thoughts on this part one episode. Would you mind commenting on my LinkedIn post about this episode or make a post of your own and be sure to tag Reagan and myself? Well, as I said as well in the beginning, we are only one episode away from rounding out our next century. 400 episodes. Can you believe it? Thank you for helping us get there, Solar Warrior. I truly could not do this without you. And I also couldn't do this without our fantastic sponsors who help keep this content free for you. You can show them some love and learn more about their offer over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how you too could partner with us to reach thousands of Solar Warriors and clean tech champions just like you. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. Mm -hmm.